I fulfilled my constitutional obligation and that made me an enemy of the state. We begin this episode with former Trillion Financial Advisory CEO, Mosilo Motepu. It's the longest, most difficult journey that anyone can take. I mean, I'm a financial person. I'm not a politician. I have never, ever in my life had anything like this, ever. Um, I mean, I used to pinch myself and, and ask myself, but what happened? <laughs> Your life just doesn't make sense. She has just come back from a photo shoot for the cover of a new book, which will be coming out in April 2021. You know, I wanted to, to be on the cover because, uh, you know, whistleblowers are always voiceless and faceless. So I, I fought hard for, my, <laughs> for me to be on the cover. Masilo has worked hard to expose state capture by private actors too in South Africa, and her book tells her story. State capture is basically putting private interests above the state. Welcome to The Witness. I'm Fatima Hassan. We are going to get back to Masilo's story as a whistleblower in a moment. First, you should know that this podcast series is brought to you by PLAF, the platform to protect whistleblowers in Africa, and is produced by Volume. Throughout the series, we are going to explore what it takes to become a whistleblower and the incredible impact that these brave individuals can have. In this episode, we are looking at the topic of legal representation for whistleblowers. How does it work? Why is it necessary? And how is PLAF helping to provide it? Now we go back to Musilo as she explains how she became a whistleblower. I started at Regiments Capital in 2005, and I'm sure the South African public will know Regiments Capital. It's a small a Black-owned, uh, managed uh, advisory firm. Uh, they take pride in saying they serve the public sector. So I joined them in 2015. She was working at Regiments Capital and was excited as she got to work with private firms such as McKinsey, who she knew had contracts with the likes of ASCOM, South Africa's state-owned power utility. It was like the blue chip of public sector. Both McKinsey and ASCOM would become notoriously prominent in the story of state capture. And at this stage, Masilo had no idea of what was to come. So no red flags, I think, the first couple of months being there. The first red flag emerged in October 2015. I was told by my uh, director that the finance minister was going to be fired by the then President Zuma. For Masilo at the time, this was not significant. The president, during his tenure, had done many cabinet reshuffles, and I didn't understand why I was being told about this one uh, finance minister being fired. So six weeks later, on the 9th of December, 2015, indeed he gets fired in a a midnight reshuffle, and he is uh, replaced by somebody who doesn't have the the same gravitas and credentials that Dandanena had at the time. This sends South Africa's currency, the RAND, into a tailspin. And within days, former Minister Praveen Gordon was brought in as the third finance minister within a few weeks to try and patch up the mess. And Masila was left wondering how she and her company had known that there would be a ministerial change before 
most South Africans and the world. So what happened was the, the advisory arm of regiments um, was bought by Eric Wood and Salim Issa to form Trillion Financial Advisory. And I was promoted to be a, a CEO. And uh, we moved on the 1st of March. You might recognize the name Trillion from a previous episode of The Witness. Masilo has said that the consultancy company is at the center of state capture in South Africa. And while Musilo was there, it was becoming increasingly difficult for her to continue to keep quiet. So by then, I think there had been some red flags with regards to me being asked to uh, ask finance to, to produce an invoice without work being done. And then once again, I was told by then finance um, director Deborah Leballo that um, Pravin Godan was going to be fired by the president. So this was the 16th of March. So it was just getting very uncomfortable for this small advisory firm to know what, the pres what is in the president's mind. Then there was the instance of Mackenzie deciding that they will not have Trillion as a supply development partner on the ESCOM uh, project. So that meant that ESCOM and Trillion did not have a contract, but I was instructed to continue the work, which I didn't really feel easy about. This is when she started to prepare herself for her eventual resignation. And I could see that I was just being used, essentially. So, and because I had no power as a CEO, uh, Trillion was run by uh, Salim Mesa, who was a shareholder, and um, Eric Wood, and these three gentlemen called uh, at Integrated Capital, called um, Clive Angel, Stan Shane, and uh, Mark Chipkin. So she resigned in June 2016. And the next step for her was to disclose what had transpired in a way that made sure that at that time, her identity remained protected. So I decided to blow the whistle when I saw that the public protector, Tulima Donsela at the time, had initiated an investigation into the allegations of Deputy Finance Minister Mkabisi Jonas, he was offered 600 million rand to be a finance minister. For the first time around September 2016, so I, three months after I'd left Trillin, I saw her terms of reference in an article and I realized I could assist her in many, many, many um, sections of her terms of reference. And then I realized I was... I was in something that I, I didn't anticipate was, was so big. And I, I had a, a lawyer give me a, a, um, a legal opinion with regards to my obligations as a director and my fiduciary responsibilities. So he said, I have to go to the public protector. But of course, I was, I was quite scared given the time that the Guptas were running the show. Azuba was in... In, in the echelons of, of the presidency and he was very powerful. And I, I for one, was just a, a single black woman with no protection, and, but I had this information. So even in my book, I say South Africa was burning. So I had to ask myself, am I going to allow fear to essentially determine my move? And I decided, no. I remember what was going through my mind was, you know, the only thing necessary for evil to prevail is for good men or women to do nothing. And I asked myself, am I going to do nothing? And that was just not, that was not an option for me. So I, I, I went to the public protector. She spent a week with the then public protector's team 
advocate Tuli Madongsela, and gave them a formal statement with supporting documents. The assistance she gave was far-reaching. I've assisted ESCOM with a civil matter. So the 700 million rand that they paid Trillin, uh, I had to provide them with an affidavit. And so ESCOM, um, the judgment was in their favor and the judge did um, rule that there was a corrupt relationship between the ESCOM executives and Trillian's directors. And I've been assisting the Zondo Commission as well and the Asset 450 unit and the NPA. So it's, it never goes away. But all of this was going to blow up quite horribly. So unfortunately, sometime in October that year, my statement ended up on the cover of um, the Sunday Times, to my dismay. And that is when now uh, Trillian had decided to, um, through its chairperson to Tokyo Sukhwale, they decided to launch an investigation into my allegations. Plus the public protector had also made some findings about Trillian and he wanted those to be investigated. When I went to Tulima Donsel, I, we specifically um, had this elegant way of not mentioning me. So instead of saying that I came to her, because we were, we were worried about my security and safety, she um, quoted from an Amabungani article and a, I think a Sunday Times article that she, uh, based on these allegations, she wants phase two to investigate regiments in Trilling. So it was not the public protector that um, gave my, my statement to the Sunday Times. It was my lawyers because the statement they have is my labor, my labor matter. And uh, Tuli only dealt with state capture. There was not labor. So it was intentionally given by my lawyers. It was the weekend that the president had interdicted the state of capture report. And they just decided that I will just be collateral damage. And, but this country had to be saved. But you know what? I'm, I'm happy it went to the Sunday Times. I've even, even the two journalists who wrote that article um, are my brothers. We have drinks. <laughs> South Africa is, is better because of that article. It, it, it was like a snowball effect. Nobody knew who Trillin was. Nobody who knew uh, Selim Issa was. That was like the deal breaker. Then now ESCOM um, started lying about Trillian. Then the minister started lying about Trillian. And then there was an ESCOM inquiry. And then... It, it shocked me and I was devastated, but I'm, I'm as you can see, I'm, I'm very at ease. And, um, you know, sometimes in life, I mean, I always say that I, I wouldn't have done it any other way. The statement detailed how Musilu knew about the then finance minister being replaced beforehand. And even though ASCOM and Trillion didn't have certain contracts with McKinsey in place, Musilu was asked to complete work for them regardless and that Trillian had contributed to the purchasing of the Optimum coal mine, which was actually owned by the Gupta family. Of course, Trillian went on a legal warfare. I had nine criminal charges against me. The hawks were on my back. Um, my, those charges were extortion, fraud, conspiracy, theft, cybercrime. I mean, they threw everything but the, the kitchen sink. It was quite, at the time, I quite, 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 but what she found concerning involved the Hawks, a special unit that is meant to investigate organized crime and corruption in South Africa. The Hawks were used 
they were weaponized to fight good women and men to do the bidding of politicians. So instead of investigating high crimes, in my allegations, I was the one who, who was being investigated. And then there was the financial side. And of course, uh, Trillian took me to the labor courts. They wanted their sign-on bonus back because I hadn't been there for two years. They sued me for breach of confidentiality. So my bill was 1.3 million um, rand. I don't know how many euros that is or, or dollars, but it was a sizable amount. It's about 90,000 US dollars. And it was at this low point with mounting legal fees that Plav stepped in to assist. Many articles written about me. And one of them was uh, by a journalist called Jessica Behosenholt. She was at the Mail and Guardian at the time. And she saw all these court cases that Trillian had against me. And um, she wrote an article essentially saying how to, how to bleed a whistleblower dry. And then so Khadija uh, from Plush, um, Khadija Sharif, took notice of the article. And I mean, I was on the verge of having to sell my house because I could not afford such um, exorbitant legal fees. So we met uh, at my criminal lawyer's offices and they essentially saved my life. They negotiated it down and they settled it. Until this day, Plough remains a, my lifesaver. So till today, they still support me. But you can't underestimate how traumatic this has been for Masilo. Right now, people talk about, no, I was on holiday and, you know, how's the weather? I'm like, yesterday I was, uh, I'm from the FBI. <laughs> yesterday I'm from the, the MPA. Yesterday I went to see the asset forfeit unit. I'm busy with a criminal uh, affidavit. So it's, it's like I'm, I'm returning from war and I, I can't, what's the word? I can't assimilate into the, the world of mere mortals because my life is just not, it's, it's consumed with this on a daily basis. I mean, a lot of my friends right now, they, they're like, where's your bodyguard? I said, no, I don't have a bodyguard. I wish I did, but um, I don't have one. And she never thought at the start that it would take this kind of mental physical and financial toll on her and her family? No, I was naive at the time. I just expected to blow the whistle, um, maybe six months time, get a job and life goes on. But I, I, I could not been so wrong because what, I, what happened after that was two years of unemployment, got no, no support from corporate. You know, they, they say they their ethos is ethics and integrity. I was deemed a political risk. I was deemed a politically exposed person. So for 24 whole months, I was um, unemployed. And then I was fighting the criminal charges and I was fighting Trillian at the labor court. And then um, just media support. I had to go to parliament on the ESCOM inquiry. So my life was, it was just hell. To tell you the truth, it was just, uh, it was unbearable. Masilo echoes other whistleblowers and guests that we've had on The Witness as she calls for a change in the legislation on protected disclosures or whistleblower laws in South Africa and the region. South Africa has this lightweight legislation called the Protected Disclosure Act, which is like a labor law legislation, which essentially says you cannot be fired or victimized for blowing the whistle, which is... I think it, 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 it was not designed for corruption <laughs> at this massive scale. 
I think it's it's an injustice. It's 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 a travesty how South Africa does not celebrate whistleblowers. Corporate does not support us. Economy was stolen. It's sitting in Dubai, <laughs> and for people to to see how we are treated, it's like we're the case study, you know, <laughs> the guinea pigs. So if people see that, no, I'm going to be unemployed, I'm going to have criminal charges, I'm going to be suspended, and I'm I'm going to be unemployable, and then I'm and I'm going to be treated like a leper, essentially, by society. Then there, there's no incentive for them to come. I got involved in a few cases prior to even state capture being in existence or being on the tip of everyone's tongues. This is Daniel Witz. He is the founder of Witz Incorporated Attorneys, and he has represented a number of whistleblowers, including Mosilo. She was getting a lot of pressure from investigators, from the police, from the Hawks, about theft of confidential information, amongst other trumped-up, unproven charges. The team from Worksman's, who I have a relationship with in terms of it's a very small community, the legal community. We all know each other. They don't do criminal law um, or they don't do the criminal law that I do, criminal defense work. They introduced me to her, said, listen, can you come to this meeting? We've got Mosilo here. She just needs a bit of handholding when she gets pressure from the investigators. And from there, I actually went with her to meet with the investigators, to meet with the National Prosecuting Authority. And we got to such an extent that they uh, issued a nolly prosecute, which is uh, where they declined to prosecute because the charges are, as I said, trumped up and unsubstantiated. And they removed all the charges against her. And from that, her and I just started working together in all matters. He has nothing but positive things to say about Mosilo and her integrity. She's a very strong woman. She's a very independent woman, highly intelligent. And she was just being bombarded from every angle. I mean, when you're coming up against a behemoth uh, at the time that Trillian was with the full support, I'll say allegedly, of government behind them because of all the corruption that was going on, Uh, it can be daunting and they really were pushing her into a corner where I think either they were trying to the tactic of let's bankrupt her or let's put so much mental strain on her that she eventually puts her hands up, gives up and leaves us alone and stops talking. And this process was an exploratory way of working. We just started making affidavits. We didn't know if anything was going to happen with them and all of a sudden state capture started becoming big news And a lot of my clients who had previously made affidavits, either, as I said, to clear their conscience or take down the whole ship with them, just started getting called. There's witnesses, um, there were inquiries with SARS, there were liquidation inquiries with other companies that went under when the corruption curtain came down. And we just started giving evidence. And one whistleblower would give their evidence. They would feel better about themselves. They would get some sort of protection. And that whistleblower would then tell his or her friends or his and her colleagues about certain things that I was doing. And they would come to me and say, look, I've been witnessing this stuff for so long. I can't take it anymore. And so so on and so forth. My clientele started building. To understand whistleblowing, it's helpful to get a grip on what services Daniel offers his clients. From my experience in the criminal courts, I helped them put their story 
not so much into legalese, but into a form that is easily presentable to whether it's the Deputy Chief Justice Zondo or whether it's to the criminal courts in order that there's no comeback at them. Because most of the time when they do, in fact, blow the whistle, I have yet to see one where there hasn't been either an application to cross-examine or an affidavit to come back at them to say, oh, that person's a liar, they're talking nonsense. And you need to have solid paperwork, number one, to make sure that there aren't any holes in your story. And I would say I assist them with their chronology. And once we assist with the chronology, I'll, I'll pick out the holes and say, listen, you can be attacked here and attacked here. Do you have proof of this? No, no, I don't have proof of it, but I did see it. And then I'll say, look, you can't put that in if you just saw it because a person's going to attack you on that. And we remove it. And the whistleblowers want to basically put everything in existence on a piece of paper. And a lot of it is fluff and it's not necessary and it doesn't take their cause or the action any further. So in terms of assistance, we help initially with those stages in preparing their story for the public forums or the inquiries. There is also plenty of support to prepare for cross-examination. The witness box or the cross-examination box, whatever you want to call it, is the loneliest place on the planet. So to help them with their preparation, to help them say, these are the types of questions you're going to get asked. If they stump you on this, this is how you should proceed. Even a simple thing saying, if you do not hear the question, don't be afraid to say, sorry, please, can you clarify or please, can you repeat yourself? Because a lot of witnesses, especially ones that haven't been prepared, just give an answer to give an answer. Or if they're under ex excruciating cross-examination, they will try to tailor an answer to make the person who's cross-examining stop from pestering them and cross-examining them. And it makes them look bad and and destroys their credibility. So a lot of that initial drafting and prep work is what we help with. Daniel says, much like Mosilo, that the legislation dealing with whistleblowing in South Africa needs to be strengthened and that the fear of arrest of whistleblowers can scare future whistleblowers from coming forward. I was also assisting Angelo Agritzi when he was at State Capture um, and Andres Fantonda. And when the whole... Uh, chaos with Angelo Agritti being sent to prison and being denied bail for a few weeks um, until we brought an urgent application successfully to re to reinstate his bail. We had to do a lot of damage control there for whistleblowers because a lot of people said, this guy's come forward, regardless of his motives, he's blown up everything to do with Basasa and African Global, which no one knew existed in the Department of Corrections and all the corruption that was going on. And now this is how you're treating him, regardless of his motives. So we had to do a hell of a lot of media campaigning and hand-holding there to say to whistleblowers, this is a once-off incident. Please do not be scared to come forward. But there is also a question of the whistleblower's motives for coming forward in the first place and whether this should matter. Ethically, a person's motives, or should I say simplistically, if they did do it or didn't do it, shouldn't come into play. If they did do something, you shouldn't motivate a positive defense for them. It's obviously different in a whistleblowing scenario because you need to spill out everything and then you worry about the repercussions, whether there's criminal repercussions or charges afterwards. I've been doing this for quite a while. Obviously, I've got senior colleagues and they would say, I've only, I've only just started, but I have been doing this for quite a while. And whatever a person's motives are, I mean, for example, I've got a new one coming up shortly, so I obviously can't say names or details yet, but the person said to me straight, he said, I was benefiting from a corrupt uh, tender process 
I'm not going to lie to you. They cut me out and this is my revenge. I'm coming forward and I'm, I'm going down and I'm taking them all down with me. In that case, I say, absolutely no problem. As long as you're honest about it and that's your motivation, let's go for it. And he says, I'll worry about the repercussions if they come. He's not looking for indemnities or protection. He just says, I'll take down everyone with me. I did warn them. Um, whereas other people who were caught up in it and their motivation might be slightly different in that they, they've witnessed it. They're not prepared to stand for it. They see what South Africa should be and what it could be. And they come forward, should I say, with honest intentions, even if people say, oh, well, surely they benefited and then they just got fed up. I would like to think that doesn't motivate me. But again, my duty is to my client first before anything else. So I do protect them as much as I can without crossing ethical boundaries. Even Daniel has been shocked by the extent of public and private sector corruption in South Africa. I felt this was always coming, but I'll be honest with you, the extent of the corruption and the money involved, that really, really shocked me. For example, last week with the State Security Agency, the, they were talking in the billions. The fact that, that they can't find, or they know where it is, but they choose not to find 9 billion rand in misallocated funds. I don't understand how you hide that. It is, it is horrific. The amounts of money that, are being, that were stolen, that are being stolen, that can never, ever be recovered from fancy cars to houses to holiday homes. And then you look at a child dying in a pit toilet because the Department of Education refuses, doesn't have a budget to fix the pit toilets. Um, my wife, for example, is a doctor in government hospitals, and you see the state of our government hospitals, which should be some of the best in the world. And the Department of Health says, sorry, we don't have a budget to provide more oxygen or more beds. And you see women sitting on the floor when I go visit her um, because there just aren't enough beds for women giving birth. And then you see nine billion rand here, a billion rand in Johannesburg uh, taken by a trillion or regiments capital or whatever it is. And that money can never be recovered. The money that flowed through ESCOM through un, uh, unlawful and illegal tender deals, I'm not going to lie to you. you. You take a step back and you say, just one of those cases could sort out an entire problem plaguing South Africa, such as pit toilets, for example. And through all of this, Daniel has been collaborating closely with PLAF. I was introduced to PLAF through helping whistleblowers, so officially through Marcelo. And Marcelo introduced, uh, introduced me via email to PLAF, and then I started chatting to the team from PLAF. I then did a bit of research on them, and it's a phenomenal organization. It really is. Um, up until I was introduced to them, I didn't know that people like this existed who would help whistleblowers, especially in Africa, to unearth corruption that was going on at a large scale. So I have formed a relationship with them, and they've been really amazing to my clients, to the whistleblowers. So much so that when someone approaches them and they're happy to take that person on, they will make an introduction to me if they think I'm suitable for that client. And so far, we've been working really well together. It's an amazing organization. We now turn to William Boudreau, the founder of PLAF. William is a lawyer and member of the Paris Bar, specializing in corporate, media, and criminal law. I consider that the top priority was 
to defend and to try to create an umbrella for the whistleblower in Africa because it's obviously in this continent where they are the most in risk for their life, where they are the most in risk to be illegally detained, execute, torture. I was able to announce the creation of PLAF in, 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 in Dakar in March 2017. The name of PLAF, the originality of the network we created, the possibility for whistleblowers to post anonymously documents, to uh, have access to encrypted communication, uh, give us the possibility to spread activities to Congo, where we have protected prominent uh, whistleblower as a very good friend, Jean-Jacques Lubumba. You'll remember Jacques from a previous episode. Now William outlines the challenges faced by PLAF. The challenges are multiple. One, when you have to protect uh, a whistleblower who is in risk to be killed, it's... Uh, the obvious burden and the obvious responsibility. Because the lives of whistleblowers are often under threat, extraditing or moving them to a third country, which is considered safe, may be necessary, but is often difficult. So it demands to be extremely lucid, imaginative and audacious. Uh, this is a very complex and tricky game, but we have been able to exfiltrate some of them. Challenge number two is having to deal with intimidation. Everything has been done to try to deter, intimidate, intimidate us and the media and the journalists. Some complaint has been lodged against me for libel. I don't give a damn. I will win. It's not an excess of confidence, but I know it's only a, a very weak marketing uh, propaganda. But it was difficult for other people not so familiar as I am of this kind of intimidation. Uh, but we'll move forward. We'll continue our, our job. So second challenge is to be sufficiently skilled, solid to resist, to campaign of defamation and intimidation. Three, not to add to suffer a deception, not to add to... Uh, difficulties where are uh, whistleblowers new difficulties. That is to say, really to be sufficiently imaginative and creative to to find case by case some some uh, solutions to help them. So it demands new tools, new instruments. And the fourth challenge, according to William, is not to be manipulated by governments or companies that try to undermine the stories and disclosures of whistleblowers. I mean. There are certainly some secret services who will try to convince us to make some leaks based on fake to discredit us. Uh, I know they are in capacity to make a very, very convincing job. So we have to be very cautious. So when we receive documents, especially where they are very crucial, we dedicate as much time as possible to review, screen them, to be absolutely sure that uh, we will not take any risk for anyone and for us.
You have been listening to The Witness. I'm Fatima Hassan. This podcast series is brought to you by PLAF, the platform to protect whistleblowers in Africa, and is produced by Volume. For more information, visit plaf.org. Join us next time for The Witness. Goodbye. Volume.